The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Morning, everyone. Praise the Lord. Glad you made it. You fought through whatever you had to fight through to get here. Get to sing the glory and goodness of God together, and now we're going to study His Word. I'm Pastor Vince, if you don't know that. I do a lot of the Bible teaching here at Love City Church, and uh, that's what we're about to do right now. So if you have a Bible or an app, if you would, please turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, We're going to do the whole chapter today. It's going to be real exciting. I know I always say that, but especially maybe today. Uh, In light of the fact that this is called by many... Uh, One of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture to understand, okay? Uh, And I think that's obvious, really, if you go look at the the very wide variety of interpretations you'll find if you begin to go look for them. So, uh, but I want to make sure for us, right off the bat, right out of the gate, I I set for us a, a pillar in terms of importance today, because what is most important for us to remember as we work through this is, is how we understand the particulars of what Jesus says here. This is a family discussion. Okay? And what does that mean? What do I mean by that? That means that this, Mark 13, is, is one of those areas of Scripture that if you hear someone teaching it as if they are 100% sure exactly how to interpret it and that if anybody doesn't see it that way, they're not really following Jesus, you should ignore them. Okay? And there are many, unfortunately, who have taken that kind of position, and I think that's a raging red flag that they are lacking the humility needed to be trusted in teaching the Scriptures. Because if you're going to come to Mark 13 and you're going to try to tell me or anybody else, I know exactly what that's saying, and, and this is the only possible way that it can be understood, and uh, anybody who doesn't understand it this way is not faithful, it means you probably don't actually understand some of the problems of the text, okay? And you're not humble enough to see it, okay? This chapter is hard to understand, And no matter what anybody says, it is not perfectly clear what exactly Jesus means in some of it. And I'm going to, just to be quite frank, I think he intended it uh, to be that way, okay? So here's what I'm proposing to you. I'm proposing to you that the big point here, the big point as it pertains to us and what we're supposed to get out of this, is preparation, not prediction, That Jesus is calling us to resolute faithfulness, not restless forecasting. And I would also submit to you that I think that's the point of much of Scripture, if not all of Scripture, that we would classify as being eschatological in nature. What does that mean? Eschatology is the study of end things, if that's not a term you're familiar with. Okay, So that's end times. What's going to happen as this thing wraps up? We're finding ourselves in a text today that addresses, or some people think addresses, some of those things, okay? But I I believe Revelation and all of the places where people get, tend to get real angsty and, you know, want to divide over and all that, really it's preparation that Jesus uh, means for us to have, not take that and turn it into means of some type of prediction, 
okay? Maybe that'll be more clear, and you'll be more excited about it as we move on. I, and look, I'm not going to be ribbing you today for a lot of amens, because this is going to be hard. So I hope you, like, if you're a coffee drinker, I hope you had some. And I hope you're ready to think today, because we're going to have to, all right? This may not be, uh, not that any of you bust out tambourines at any point when I'm preaching anyways, but it ain't going to happen today for sure, uh, would be my guess, okay? <clears throat> now, I want you to also know this. Most of you, before we read this, If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you probably have a position, whether you know it or not, about this, okay? This boils down basically, okay, and those of you that are are super Bible nerds, okay, I I know it's not necessarily this basic, but you've got to cut it off somewhere, all right? Basically two options as it pertains to these verses. So either you're a futurist or you're a preterist, Okay? Now, I realize there may be a few tough guys in the room that just pop their chest out and they're like, what would you just call me, bro? Preterist just means you see some of what's here in Matthew 24 and some other biblical prophecy as having already happened in the past. That's not something we're looking forward to, okay? A futurist, that's a little easier to probably guess. That means they're seeing much of what's said here as something we're looking forward to from here, okay? It hasn't happened yet, all right? So, It'll be interesting as we read this, depending on what influences you've had, what you've heard about it, or just what you've assumed when you've read, where you land, okay? So just kind of know that about yourself. Uh, You can be full or partial in either of those positions, Uh, and if you know me at all, you probably expect I find myself somewhere in the middle of the bookends when it comes to these things. Um, But again, I want you to know, I think that where you land as far as that's concerned is much less important than whether or not you understand and live in light of the big points that Jesus is making. Okay? So, what does this mean? Practically, part of what it means is don't message me this week with your favorite message on eschatology. Okay? (laughs) All right? Uh, If you're a preterist and you send me all your arguments, I'm going to say those are some great points. Okay? If you're a futurist and you send me all your arguments, I'm going to say, those are some great points. All right? I told a pastor when we first started Love City Church in 2012 that I wasn't real dogmatic on these things. And he told me with a certain air uh, about the comment, well, I suggest you take a position if you're going to plant a church. And he's not a pastor anymore, so do with that what you will. Um, Because here we are, and I'm about to preach Mark 13 to you. So, amen. Uh, glory to God. All right, so we're going to do it. Let's do it. It's Mark 13. I hope you're there. Uh, we're going, doing the whole thing, all right? And that's part of the, the reason for that is because it's, it's just, it'd be hard to find a, <clears throat> a stopping point. It's, I know this is a lot of verses, but we're, we're going to be all right. We're going to make it. Okay. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. 
For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in and get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not go turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it will not happen in the winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will not... And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather to gather his elect from the four winds, from the farthest ends of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things All these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Praise God for his word. All right, you guys ready? Yeehaw, buckle up. Here we go. All right, so let's go back to one and two. First of all, we need to understand... A little bit of what's happening here. So, first thing that happens is the disciples point out the temple, okay? Herod, the same one that had tried to kill Jesus when he was born, had rebuilt and expanded the temple at this point into a true wonder of the world. Remember back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they had rebuilt the temple and it, it wasn't up to like, you know, it wasn't up to snuff of what had been in the past, but you know, they did their best. Well, Herod and kind of to curry favor with the Jews, but also buildings for them. You know, Herod was, was te- technically a Jewish leader, but he was really a puppet for Rome. And so this was, a, this was about like the glory of building stuff in, at, at one level, okay? So it wasn't all really, for sure, in Herod's mind, it wasn't for the Lord. But he'd rebuilt and expanded the temple, and at this point it was a true wonder 
of the world, okay? Some of the stones used to build the retaining wall for the Temple Mount are still visible, okay? The retaining wall that had to hold up kind of the flattened area of the Temple Mount, uh, that, that wasn't actually part of the Temple structure. All those stones did end up coming apart, like Jesus said, and we'll get to that in a second. But part of the retaining wall is still visible today. And some of those stones put into that wall are so big, we're still not quite sure how they moved and set them. Modern equipment wouldn't be able to do it. Okay, And I realize this is the point where the guy with the funny hair pops up and says it was aliens. <laughs> no, I think people in the past were just smarter sometimes if we give them credit for it. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and, and they had, you know, it's kind of sad to me a little bit when I was thinking about this. Well, I don't think we could build anything like that now. I mean, listen, I'm not for like let's enslave you know, hundreds of thousands of people in order to build these grand temples, but you just couldn't get it done today with like building codes and stuff and just the way the world is. So probably won't see another thing like that until heaven, all right? Um, the, the, this temple had so much uh, pure white marble on the outside that it would often look like it was covered in snow from a distance. Uh, and it was, it was adorned with gold all over the place, all right? This was, this was just incredible craftsmanship and grandness on a scale that many had never seen before at that time. Okay, so all of that, all right, you know, you know all that, but here's the big question. Was Jesus impressed? And the answer is nope, <laughs> right? What do you have to say about it? He predicted that it was all coming down, okay? And here's what's interesting. It did, okay, in 70 AD. So about 40 years after Jesus said these words, uh, Rome came in because in AD 66, the Jews rebelled against Rome, and then Rome comes in and they just lay waste to Jerusalem and destroy this temple, okay? And the, the reasoning, and some of you have probably encountered this, it's, it's very commonly said, the reason often given for every stone being removed was that as the temple burned, um, f- you know, fire was set, some say that's accidental, it's, it's hard, man, it's a long time ago in terms of getting details, but in any case, there was a fire, there was wood inside, and as that burned, a lot of that gold trimming and decoration is said to have melted and flowed down in between the cracks of the stone. And so uh, it's said that then the Romans, you know, begin basically disassembling it stone by stone to get to the gold. And that would be one reason why the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled, that not one stone would be left upon another. I'll just say, I couldn't find any eyewitness account of that. It's like I said, it's very commonly said, it's oft repeated, has been for a long time. But it's really, I mean, that's cool if that's what happened. But in any case, the temple was destroyed. You can tell, you can go today. All you can see is the, the portion of the retaining wall that's left, okay? So, um, and the fact that this happened in 70 AD, all right, it's why it's hard to find anybody who does not think that these words of Jesus that we just read in Mark 13 it's hard to find anybody that doesn't think they're at least partially fulfilled in the events of 70 AD, okay? But there are, there are many who think that everything in Mark 13 was fulfilled then, and I would say it gets, <clears throat> that gets a little harder to show as we go on. I'm, I'm, I'm open to it, um, and, and like I said, I, there's, there's such compelling argumentation on each side of this thing, I, I really... I really couldn't peg myself one place or another. It's, it's a lot to think about. But again, I'm giving you this stuff because we almost have to, to have read this and to deal with it and teach through it. But what's most important is that we, we see the point 
that Jesus is getting at, okay? So verses, that's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 8, all right, uh, we see the disciples begin to ask uh, some follow-up questions, right? Because Jesus drops a bomb, as he often does. Jesus, check out the temple. Isn't that cool? Uh, not one stone will be left upon another, actually, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I imagine Jesus with dry humor that I would have related to, but maybe that's just me appropriating him. I don't know. Um, but so we have four disciples here, right? Uh, Andrew, James, John, Peter. And, and so they ask a couple things. They ask, when will these things be? And what will be the signs? When will these things be? And what will be the signs? It seems to me that Jesus focuses much more on the what without being very definitive on the when. But the when is what everyone likes to get real hung up on here. You guys track with that? Which is, it's pretty par for the course on, on us missing the point, unfortunately. that <laughs> this, this happens a lot, okay? And has, I mean, that was a large part of the Pharisees' problem too. We went through that in earlier chapters of Mark where Jesus is like, hey guys, missing the point. Okay, so what, the, the first what Okay, so they asked what and when, and I'm, I'm saying to you, Jesus was much more clear on the what, and, and I'm going to give you three that he made clear in here. The first what that I'm going to give you is deception, okay? Deception. We see that right out of the gate. We're still looking at verses three through eight. Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead Many. Okay, he picked up on that again in 22 uh, or 21. And then, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is here, he's there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. So some will come in his name. Some will even claim to be the second coming of Christ. Some will even apparently do signs and wonders. But... The bottom line, we need to know about that, and we need to be confident in saying this to people. When Jesus returns, okay, we will not be wondering if it's really him. Okay, when Jesus returns, it's going to be real obvious, okay, much to the celebration of those who have trusted him by faith, uh, much, unfortunately, to the terror of those who haven't. Now, in addition to what Jesus says here, we have several other warnings throughout Scripture about false teachers, about wolves, and even wolves in sheep's clothing. And it is often jarring when those wolves are exposed. But I think we need to at least say this, and there's a lot more that could be said on this, okay, in light of recent events, but we've got a lot of work to do in this today, so I can't do that. But what I want to at least say is we cannot blame the Lord for our surprise. In his love, he has prepared us for the sad reality that there will be many deceivers that come. And, and oftentimes we, we, we end up in kind of this loop of like, how? how? How could that person, how could, I mean, look, man, some of these false messiahs, some of these false teachers are going to have false signs and wonders. What do you mean? Satan's a deceiver that comes like an angel of light. And he's not got any kind of power like God, but he's a real good liar and a real good trickster. 
And if somebody's working with him, they, they get to tag on, you know, tag on with some of that. So that's the point is the master has warned us. Um, doesn't mean it's not still jarring, but maybe we shouldn't be as surprised as we are sometimes. Now, because of the warnings that Jesus wraps this discourse up with, we have to extend this caution about deception okay, to the temptation to turn this chapter, Mark 13, along with uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, into fodder for fruitless speculation on the when of Christ's return. Okay? That was a long way for me to say, because this, this account is, we see it in Matthew 24, we also see it in Luke 21, some slightly different details. But what I'm saying to you is, part of what we need to not be deceived about is people taking chapters like these and turning it into all about trying to forecast future events, and in particular Christ coming. That's a deception we need to watch out for. That's something that we can't get roped into, okay? So I'm sorry if you've, if you've ever been roped into something that, and you, you know, you, you gave money for one of the billboards a few years back that was pegging the date that Jesus was going to return. I'm sorry that that happened to you, and I hope it doesn't ever happen again, but th- you can just know if somebody's talking like that, they're off their rocker, or they're a deceiver, okay? Amen. It's all right. We're okay. You all right? I know. We're not done yet. So that was the first what. When Jesus and what will be the signs? The first one out of the gate, he says, look out for deception. Okay? Here's the second. He says persecution. Okay? Where do do we see that? We see that in verses 9 through 13. But be in your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. As a testimony to them, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I, <clears throat> I imagine that these words from Jesus uh, were part of what was in Peter's mind as he expounded this idea in 1 Peter 4. And I thought about it. I, I don't have any comments or insights that will come anywhere close to what we read here from the leader of the apostles. So I'm just going to read you from 1 Peter 4. Uh, as, as I believe Peter's thinking on, on, along this same line as, as Christ is talking about here. Okay, this is First Peter 4, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Listen carefully to this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. It's not bad for a fisherman, is it? Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking actually words of God. Whoever serves is to do one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in All things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
He continues, Beloved, do not be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. When it comes to Jesus bringing up the what of persecution and how it is we think about that, how it is we move into and through that, I would just submit to you 1 Peter 4, uh, 7 through 16. I got nothing to add. I can't say it any better than that. Uh, quick sidebar for my friends uh, that I was discussing with this week, the question of uh, God leading and guiding us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 11 is... I think, of particular interest. Um, I can't get into that. I can't open up that can of worms because we're playing in a bathtub of worms today. So um, I, I just can't do it. But just I'm just chucking that out there, right? Verse 11 is interesting along that conversation. Amen. All right. la di da di da All right. Now we're in verses 14 through uh, 23. If you, thought, <laughs> if you thought it was exciting so far. You. All right. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay? What, what, so here's a question. What is the abomination of desolation besides a wonderful name for a death metal band? What is this? Well, that's a great question, okay? And this is another one of those things where if you've got somebody telling you, I know exactly what that means, well, probably not, okay? This is where the conversation tends to get steamy for preterists and futurists. So what are, what's the setup here? Is the abomination of desolation something that happened before 70 AD, right, and the Roman destruction of the temple, or is it something that has yet to happen? That's the divide, and that's for sure, I mean, going to affect some of how you see this, right? So, but that, what that also means, okay, so it continues, that means we need to ask the question, the warnings right after about, like, hey, don't run inside to grab stuff. If you're in the field, don't, don't go back for your coat. Run to the mountains when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, okay? Those warnings... Were those for Jews in that time, right? Running up to and, and up, coming up to the events of 70 AD? Or is that something that we should be looking forward to happen, right? And there's people that will look at this and uh, Daniel and 2 Thessalonians and Revelation. And, and there's, uh, there's many who tend would be in, in the more futurist camp that see a, a tribulation coming. Okay, and, and this would all be a part of that. So... Uh, we need to, in order to touch this conversation, we have to consider prophecy from the book of Daniel, um, 9, 11, and 12, and all in there. Uh, 
that uses the same language, we have to consider uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and also some things in Revelation. But, and, and I don't, I'm not going to take you to all of that because I, I, I <laughs> people that do this all the time, like for a living, theologians get themselves twisted up trying to, trying to chart it all out. So we're, I'm not going to do that. We're trying to stick to the big point. Here's the thing. So what is the abomination of desolation? Most people agree that this is some kind of grotesque idol worship done in the temple. Okay? But they disagree on the when. <laughs> when did that happen or is it going to happen? Uh, many think it has already happened, uh, while many think it's still in the future. For, for those who see it as yet to have happened, okay, so they think this is future prophecy... They're looking for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem in order for this to happen, okay? Because right now there is no temple, okay? Uh, they don't, you know, the, the Jews don't control that area, right? That's where the Dome of the Rock is. So, um, so they're looking for a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, which would have seemed real impossible about 100 years ago, but with Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 and other developments, it, it doesn't seem quite so impossible now. I mean, there's still lots of hurdles in the way, but there's a, there's a small group of people pushing for the Temple Institute. Okay, so maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like I told you, I, I'm, I don't have a... I, I'm not sure. But uh, most futurists, so that's... We're talking about the same people. Most futurists, and, and listen to me, I'm saying most because here's what you need to know. There are so many subcategories to both of these positions that it's, it's dizzying to try to keep track of. So I've boiled it down to two major branches. And if, if you're somebody that really digs this stuff, get on your Google machine and go hog wild. You can, you can spend as many hours on it as you want and you won't read it all, okay? Uh, but, but most futurists, <clears throat> they would see the abomination of desolation and the events around it, where it's something like that's mentioned in Daniel, in all the Gospels that I told you, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this similar Olivet discourse. Uh, they would see what is said in Daniel, what is said in the Gospels, what is said in Second Thessalonians 2, and what is said in Revelation, all as pointing to one event in the future. That's all future prophecy. That's, what, that's the way typical futurists would see it. Uh, I'd say there are some plausible reasons to see it this way. And I would say this, importantly, many faithful Christians do see it that way and have seen it that way. Okay? Now, on the other end, on the other side of the coin, most preterists believe these things happened in the past. So I'm just real quick, I'll break that down for you. So when they look at what Daniel said which had this similar language to abomination, abomination of desolation, okay? They, they, most of them would point to an event in 167 BC. There was a Greek leader that really hated the Jews. His name was Epiphanes. And he uh, came in, this is Greek, not Roman. This is before the Romans came in. Just was horribly harsh to the Jewish people and went into the temple set up idols, and actually took a pig and slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. Okay, If you know anything about Old Testament dietary restrictions and kosher and all of that, this was uh, as offensive and as... as, as if, if you wanted to tick the Jews off and you wanted to basically desecrate their temple, he figured out the best way to do it. Uh, 
interestingly, it, it worked. The Jews did get real upset, and that, was, that spurred a revolt where they ended up actually ruling themselves for about 100 years. And then the Romans came in and they were subjugated again. But, so when, what I'm saying is preterists, when they see the abomination of desolation, they, they see Daniel looking forward oftentimes to this event where this guy takes, goes in, this, this Greek tyrant goes in and slaughters a pig in the temple. Okay? <clears throat> Most preterists, when, so then, when, then now when they look about what Jesus, when Jesus brings this up, and uses the same language of an abomination of desolation, there's a, there's a few options of what they think, where they think this already happened, okay? Um, in no particular order, and different ones would, would emphasize different things, but I'm just going to give you an idea of this, these, these realities. So the first thing they'll say is in 66 AD, the, the revolt that, that brought the Romans in, okay, when they destroyed the temple... That was started by the Zealots. You remember we talked a little bit about that group earlier on, right? Uh, Jesus had one in his disciples, Simon the Zealot. Okay, it was a group that was, they were, they were really hardcore about Israel ruling itself and did not like these other, nobody liked these other larger empires coming in and holding them down, but these guys really didn't like it and they were willing to do something about it, okay? So they're the ones that kind of kicked things off in 66 and and partially because they felt like the you know the the current priests and all of that were just capitulating to Rome they kick all of them out and the zealots appoint their own high priest to go in and start making sacrifices and stuff and so this i mean that's dead wrong according to everything the old testament would have laid out thus far so that's that's where some would say this is where this guy you know, this guy came in, they, they named him high priest, he wasn't qualified, he starts offering sacrifices in a way that would have, been, would have been an abomination to God, okay? So that's one option they look at. Another is, uh, there was a leader in 40 AD, uh, Roman by the name of Caligula, got the idea that he wanted to set a statue up of himself in the temple to be worshipped, uh, which that seems like maybe it's getting at some of what more of like Thessalonians and Revelation talks about. But, but it's tough because they made the statue, put it on a ship, and off it went towards the temple, and Caligula died, and they never delivered it or never put it in. So you kind of got to think that that was, the abomination of desolation there was the intent to do it. Mm, you know, I don't know. Whatever. Maybe. I'm talking about a long time ago. The, the last, I would say, <clears throat> to me, if I was going to go this route, probably, probably the one that makes the most sense so the, the Roman leader that came in, that brought the, the troops to put down the rebellion in 70 AD where the temple was, was destroyed, was named Titus. Okay? And it's, there's Josephus and um, maybe a couple other accounts that we can piece together. But we know that when, when he came in, uh, and you know the zealots, man, <laughs> when, when they basically came around and sieged the city, like when I say zealots, man... These guys burned all the food so that all the rest of their countrymen, like they thought that would make them fight. Like, either we fight or die now because we can't just hang out here. It's like, guys, <laughs> chill out. Uh, so that actually ended up being part of why Rome won there. Uh, they probably would have anyways. You might feel me like, eh, it's because it's this, this is a long time ago, right? And I've read a bunch of history and like I've got it sorted, but 
there's not even that much to go off of, unfortunately. So, but we do know there's some accounts of Titus, because there's, there's this idea of like idol worship and all of that. All we really see from historical accounts is that Titus went into areas of the temple that maybe he shouldn't have. And that doesn't seem so much like an abomination of desolation, except that maybe the Romans were constantly carrying flags and standards that had images of, of different uh, Roman leaders and whatever. And of course, they had the kind of cult of the Caesars where they were seen as a deity. Interestingly, like, like 10 years later, Titus will become Caesar. So maybe, right, this guy coming in, you know, I don't know what he said when he was in there. Nobody does, right? Did he declare himself God? I'm not sure. But in any case, uh, he had no business in there. And if they were carrying in all these kind of idolatrous banners and standards that they would have been carrying anyways, could that have been what Jesus was referring to? Maybe. And I just want to say to, to you, many faithful Christians see it this way and have seen it this way. And remember, I also said that about the futurist position. You guys got me? Many faithful Christians have seen it either way. <clears throat> and here's, some see it as both, right? That these were, that everything I just told you about, that those were partial fulfillments of what's said here, but that there is yet another one coming. And there's, I think there's some good reason to think that could be right. Uh, but that doesn't end the disagreement here. Um, even sorting that out, preterists and futurists, they disagree on how to understand verses 24 through 27 as well. Okay, what is that? Uh, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Okay, so again, 24 through 27, we have the same dichotomy. Some see this as something that has already happened. Um, and and that, that seems to me maybe the hardest issue with that position. Um, and, but there are some extra biblical historical accounts that can be pieced together to support that. So some, some think that 24 through 27, as I said, belongs with the rest of this in the past. Past, it's been fulfilled, it's, been, it's already happened, Okay. Um, some see this as a reference to the second coming of Christ in the future. Which, if, if any of what Jesus was talking about so far in Mark 13 was referencing 70 AD, which I, I think it almost surely does, then, then this would be a pivot from that chronologically. So once you hit verse 24, it's like, he was talking about all that, and it's like, without him saying, now I'm saying something different, now I'm on to something different, he just kind of starts talking about something different. Uh, that would have to be what's going on here, if that's the case. So, <clears throat> verse 30 is kind of a linchpin. Let's look at that again closely, all right? It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay? And if, if you're somebody that's of more of a preterist uh, viewpoint, you might be like, well, there you go, man. See, there's the proof, you big dummy, right? But not really. <laughs> First of all, because prophecy is difficult, A, just in general. But B, um, 
Anybody else have, have little, little footnotes, like you got, a, you got a little letter next to some of the words in your Bible? Mine has a little B next to it, and if I go find the little B on the bottom of the page, it's right there. You see that? It's little tiny words. That's what those are for. It's fun. It makes your Bible study even more exciting. So there where it says generation uh, in the NASB, my little footnote says, or race, or people. Okay? So what does that mean? That means... Verse 30 can read, <clears throat> truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And why would a preterist say like, oh, well, there, there's your nail in the coffin, right? Because if, if Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, this generation, right, is going to see all this happen, well, then it had to have happened, if that's what he meant. But if he says, truly I say to you, this people, this race, or this people will not pass away until all these things take place, well, that could be talking about Jewish nation as a whole, Jewish people as a whole, right? So there you go. And again, well, which one is it? Which one's the right word? That's, that's what I'm trying to tell you. A bunch of people far more brilliant than anybody in this room have debated this forever, and we, we're not sure, Okay. But what I, what I want you to be encouraged on is this. I think, I told you in the beginning, I think Jesus left some of the when vague on purpose because it wasn't the point. Okay? So what is the point? Well, we're getting there. Okay? <clears throat> like I said, the when, the when, right? What the disciples ask? What are the signs? When is this going to happen? What are the signs? Okay? The when is not real clear, but everyone should be able to agree on the what's that Jesus addresses here. And verse, verses 31 through 36 give us our, the last one I'm going to give you, okay? So the third what, okay? It was, it was deception. What are the what's? Deception, persecution. The last one I'm giving you is preparation. Preparation. This, is, this third what that I'm giving you is, is less something about what to expect, right? Uh, and it's more about what to do in light of what Jesus taught, okay? He's telling us to expect deceivers and deception. Don't let anybody deceive you, right? He's telling us to expect persecution as a result of following him, okay? Or he was telling them that, if, okay, if, if that's your position. Um, but this third what... It's, it's, it's not what to expect, it's more about what to do in light of what Jesus taught. And I really think that wraps up the, the thrust of Jesus' answer to his guys here. This is really, this is the capstone he puts on it. And this is his emphasis. So I think, I, I think Paul picked up on this idea uh, in Ephesians 5, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this. Well, let me, let me just read... Let me just read what, so I'm saying this last what of preparation is found in 31 through 36. So let me just read that to you one more time. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Uh, God and Christ being Trinitarian in nature, not, not totally sure how that works. There's conjecture about it. Um, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. Clearly he... he voluntarily limited certain elements of his deity in order to be born of the Virgin Mary. So perhaps this is one of the places where that also in God's redemptive plan happened. Okay, but 
he doesn't expound, so maybe the point isn't for us to sit and think about that. What is he saying? What does he expound on? Well, he says this, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows are in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Okay, so for those of you that have heard someone say, oh, well, he's only talking to the disciples. What I say to you, I say to all. Be on the alert. Okay? All right. Shouldn't need to argue about that anymore. Good. So I think Paul picks up a similar thought process in Ephesians 5. So preparation, that's what I'm saying. The last what is preparation. What does that mean for us? Well, thankfully, Jesus had Paul and others continue to write scripture and unpack uh, some of what now it means to live in light of what Jesus did and taught, okay? I'm in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. So then be careful how you walk. I'm talking about being prepared for this reality that Jesus just said. You don't know when the master's coming. It could be at night, it could be in the morning, it could be when the rooster crows, it could be any time, Okay? So what do we do? How do we prepare for that? Here's how we prepare for it. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of your time. Making the most of your time. So I think that's like the time, the hours in the day that God gives you to steward, but I think also that's your time. We, get real, we could get real focused on the wind of this and getting sucked into the debates about was this, was this all fulfilled then, or is it going to be fulfilled? And, 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 these, and we're talking about di- other people's time periods. I'm, I'm t- focused on your time, this time, where God has placed you. If you're like, well, I don't know if that's that important, I'll get you in a second. Hold on. Because the days are evil. Therefore, I'm talking about how to prepare for what Jesus taught here. I'm, st- I'm still on it. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay grateful. It's part of how we prepare for what Jesus is talking about here. Stay grateful. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father and subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Stay connected in Christian community. And I don't mean in some kind of false veneer way. I'm talking about where you can say you're obeying the command to subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm still talking about how to prepare yourself for what Jesus, the point of what Jesus really shook out here in Mark 13. Now, for those of you that are like, well, I don't know about my, thinking about this as my time. Well, Acts 17, 22. Paul stood in the midst. This is Luke recording what Paul did in the Areopagus, okay? Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Uh, you'll hear that called Mars Hill sometimes. Men of Athens, I see that you were very religious. So, he's pre- he, so he comes in to this very highly pagan influenced area, and, and now he's basically preaching a sermon to him. I see you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, right? So they got hundreds, maybe thousands of gods. They're so religious and they're, they're so on it that they're like, well, maybe we forgot about a God or maybe we missed one. So we'll just make one to an unknown God. 
cover our base, right? And here's what he says. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Here's why we're here. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay? Their appointed times and the boundary of their habitation. My point is, God has put you here and now for a reason. So make the most of your time. Amen. So what does this mean? In preparation, to summarize, what does that mean? This means we don't get to be lazy and pick which answer we like or think is more likely. What we have to do is live in the tension of this reality. Christ could return before I finish this sentence or long after I'm dead and gone. And we must walk the narrow path between the two. This means we plan, but we hold those plans loosely. This means that we love with the fierce tenacity of those who know that they are not promised tomorrow. This means we refuse to flirt with the temporal trappings of sin like fools because we know that we have an eternal mission to get the good news of the gospel to as many people as possible. Futurists and preterists, ah, pre- or post-millennialists, here's what they all agree on. They agree on one thing, friends, and that is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And I don't need an eschatology chart to know that that great and glorious day is closer today than it was yesterday. And there's a whole lot of people who don't know that Jesus will save them by his grace and a lot that don't even know they need him to yet. So what does that mean? That means, friends, we must stand and fight deception. We must stand and have no fear of persecution. How? Why? Because Jesus has given us everything we need for our preparation. And if that's true, and it is, may we honor and glorify him alone as we make the most of the time that he's given us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. First of all, we're just thankful, Lord, for... Uh, the privilege of prayer. Thankful that you invite us to come into your presence. Thankful that we get to bring words to you uh, and know that you hear them. Thank you for inclining your ear to us, Lord. Thank you for these verses in Mark 13. Even though, Lord, uh, we, in our ignorance, have oftentimes turned these verses into uh, an occasion for sparring with one another uh, as believers. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that today, the big point you were making, the points you were emphasizing came through, that our hearts were encouraged, that we were challenged, 
that we see, Lord, that uh, you were clear about the danger of, of deception and that that's something that has gone on from the time you ascended forward. There have always been those coming, either claiming to be coming in your name or just straight claiming that they are you, but trying to deceive, trying to lead people away, trying to get things from people instead of lay their life down for them, which is what a true shepherd looks like, because that's what you look like, Lord. Lord, help us be on the guard against deception. Help us have your eyes to see it, have the wisdom of your word written upon our hearts that we can be less likely to be duped. Lord, uh, I thank you for your part in that, for helping us, for guiding us, being with us. Thank you for indwelling us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have prepared us. You have given us all we need with your word. And by empowering us with your spirit, you've given us all we need to make our way in this world. You've given us all that we need to participate in the eternal mission of sharing your gospel with the world. Father, help us. Help us to grab a hold of this reality, to walk forward in love-motivated, humble boldness. I know that's what you've called us to, Lord. We need your help. Thank you. We said we can ask for it, and you promised to give it. We're trusting you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.